Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome to another episode of The Warning Woods. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it five stars and writing a review. Reviews help spread the podcast to more listeners. If you want more creepy content, follow me on Instagram and TikTok at The Warning Woods. I'm Miles Thomas Tridel, and this story is called Uexa. My commute is typically uneventful. I have a nice 18-speed bike I bought to save money on gas and help the old environment out a bit. I'm not sure if the gas money saved has overlapped the cost of the bike yet, but I've discovered bicycling is a pleasant form of exercise. I've come to enjoy my ride to and from work every day. The scenery is undoubtedly why I enjoy the ride so much. There's a good-sized forest between my neighborhood and the factory. The county put in a nice little trail that runs straight through the heart of the forest, and that's the trail I ride every day. I love the lush greenery in the spring and summer, the beautiful colors in the fall, and being able to see deep into the woods in the winter. The only downside that comes to commuting without windows comes when I'm near the factory. I usually smell it first, but it doesn't take long for the smoke and smut to become visible in the otherwise fresh air. The trees in the smoky part of the woods bear a distinctive discoloration. I can't help but feel guilty. Those old trees are the only living things that remain within a half mile of the factory. The smaller plants have died off. The animals have vanished. Not even birds fly through the smoky haze. As much as I hate the damage caused by the factory, a part of me also appreciates the dark beauty of the old trees standing defiantly in the billowing gray atmosphere. It has a haunting quality. My story begins on that murky stretch of trail. My pedals matched the rhythm of the deftone song I was listening to as I entered the thick smog. I pulled my shirt over my mouth and nose. If I don't do that, I always end up pulling over and hacking on the side of the trail. As I've mentioned, there's nothing living besides the trees in that area, so you could imagine my surprise when I noticed an orange glow off to one side of the trail. I slowed down and removed my headphones. A couple hundred yards deep, the trees were flickering yellow and orange. I saw no flames, but knew the light must be from fire. I rolled forward a few feet to try and see around the trees closest to me, but the fire was still hidden from view. I became worried that the forest itself was burning. It was late autumn, the ground was dry and covered with dead leaves. It felt like the fire was hiding from me though remaining just behind the trees, where I couldn't see. I didn't want to be an alarmist, but if the trees caught fire, it wouldn't be long before the factory was cut off from the town until the blaze could be contained. Who knows how long that would take. I felt like I should warn everyone there just in case. Without putting my music back on, I started pedaling again. The wind rushed past my ears as I sped down the path. I looked to the side often and saw the telltale glow, but never a single flame. The edge of the forest was in sight when a new sound came with the breeze. It was human in tone, 
but animalistic in nature. Somewhere between a cry and a scream, it gave me the chills. I slowed down but didn't stop. For the first time I wondered, was someone out there? I arrived at work and punched my time card. Donning my orange vest, I made my way to the supervisor's office. The door was open, and I saw my boss, Donnie, staring into his computer screen intently. Hey boss, I interrupted. He didn't look very appreciative of that. I hate to bother you, but I think there might be something going on in the woods not far from here. I thought I saw a fire. Thought you saw? He asked rudely. He didn't look away from the screen. Well, yeah, I thought I saw it. The way Donnie looked at me made me feel like a buffoon. I definitely wasn't going to mention the weird vocal sound I'd heard after that. Anyway, I said after Donnie didn't respond, just wanted to let someone know in case there's a problem out there. Alright Tom, get to work now. So I did. I got to the line and prepared for the day. Greg, my coworker, arrived shortly after me. How fast does your car go? I asked him. He looked confused. My car? Yeah, how fast does it go? I repeated. Oh, I don't know. Uh, 110, 115? Why? Because I always beat you here. Greg laughed and I smiled. He punched my shoulder and started setting up his station. Hey, did you see anything weird on your drive over here? I asked him. He thought for a moment, then shook his head. He asked what I meant, so I explained what I'd seen through the trees. He told me he didn't notice anything like that, which was comforting. The road Greg came in on was parallel to the bike trail, so the flames would have been between us. Assuming he would have noticed a fire if there was one, I decided to forget all about it and focus on the task at hand. The work went quickly with Greg. He had the skill and attention to detail that most employers say they're looking for but are either lying or too lazy to actually find. I'd like to think he thought the same of me. Either way, we stayed on top of our work well enough to have plenty of time for jokes and gossip. Two sure ways to prevent the dreary factory from getting to you. At the end of the day, I punched out and said farewell to Greg in the parking lot. Donnie was there too, but he got no such courtesy. The typical smut filled the air, but nothing more. No forest fires blocked the roads. I mounted my bike, clipped on my helmet, and put in my earbuds. I chose a perfect circle as the soundtrack for my ride home, and set off into the woods. The pinkish-orange light from the setting sun cut between the trees and piercing smog. It also made it difficult to tell if the flickering lights I'd seen on the way in were still out in the forest. Lost in the music and staring into the trees, I almost didn't stop in time. A young woman in old-timey garb was standing on the trail with her hands raised toward me. She came out of nowhere. Stop, please. I saw her lips move but only barely heard her plea over the music in my ears. Squeezing the brakes, I skidded to a stop just a couple feet from her. Her clothes were tattered in various places and stained with dirt. Her skin bore similar scratches and smudges. Little trails running from puffy red eyes through the dirt on her cheeks told me she had been crying. Grubby condition aside, she was quite pretty. I laid my bike down and removed my earbuds. I kept my head on a swivel as I stepped toward her, wondering if she was being pursued by man or beast. Are you alright? I asked as I tenderly grabbed her shoulders. She shook her head furiously. No, no, I'm not alright. They tried to kill me. Who tried to kill you? I asked. I suddenly wished I had a faster mode of transportation, and one that could fit more than just one person. The people in the forest. They tried to sacrifice me. They still have my sister, she said as her tears made an encore appearance. 
You're safe now, I tried to assure her. I'm going to call the police and we'll get all this sorted out, okay? No, she shouted aggressively. A frightening intensity burned behind her puffy eyes. There's no time for the police. We have to save her. With that, she broke away and ran into the forest. I froze for a moment, not sure if I should follow or call for help. If someone was waiting for us among the trees, there wouldn't be much I could do to help her. Then again, if I called the police, I wouldn't really know where to send them. They might even think I was just seeing things. The whole debate probably lasted 30 seconds, but the young woman was already getting away. I feared I might lose sight of her in the smog, so I waited no longer. Abandoning my bike, I chased her into the forest. We must have been running for at least five minutes, and I still hadn't caught up to her. She was quick, especially considering the bustling dress she was wearing. The dress was odd. Had whoever tried to kill her forced her to wear it, I wondered. Were they some twisted version of an Amish cult? The fading sunlight caught her up ahead as the smoky air swirled around her. The eerie image gave me a new idea, one that seemed both plausible and insane at the same time. Was she a ghost? No, I decided. I had touched her on the trail. I could hear her feet crushing leaves as she ran ahead of me. A ghost wouldn't be so tactile, right? I realized there was really no way of knowing, but a fairer question to ask myself was how far I was willing to follow this woman, ghost or not, into the forest as the sun was setting. Hey, I called ahead to her. How much farther are we going? She stopped and waited for me to catch up. She held a finger to her lips in the universal gesture to shut up. We're close, she whispered. A twig snapped behind me, and I spun around. The last rays of sun landed on a tall, bearded man wearing clothes from a similar period as the woman's. He had a thick rope coiled around his shoulder. Who is this, Beatrice? He demanded, speaking to the woman. I put myself between them and puffed out my chest. The man stood nearly a head taller than me, but I tried to look threatening. Is this the man who tried to kill you? I asked the young woman, Beatrice. Kill her? The man chuckled. I could not imagine killing my own daughter. My mind went into a tailspin. What had I gotten myself into? I turned towards Beatrice, who had stopped crying and was now smiling pleasantly at her father. Does it matter who he is, father? The man smiled back at her and answered, no, I suppose not. Thank you, darling. You've done well. The man stepped towards me and unraveled the rope. I tried to run, but something caught my foot. Beatrice. She tripped me, and I landed in the dirt. The man grabbed one of my hands and tied the rope tightly around my wrist. I got to my knees and struggled, but he still managed to wrap the rope around my torso two or three times, pinning one arm to my side. Then he caught my other hand and secured it similarly. I could still run, but the man put a powerful hand on my shoulder as if to tell me that would be futile. He held onto the rope near the small of my back, and we followed Beatrice deeper into the forest. The sunlight was gone now, but I saw the flickering yellow-orange hue I'd seen that morning flashing among the trees. This time, I could hear the fire crackling. I also heard voices. They were making sounds very similar to the strange cry I heard on my way to work. I got the sickening feeling that I had been watched and chosen. But chosen for what? We rounded a particularly large tree and entered a clearing. The sight seemed unreal. I wouldn't have been surprised if I suddenly woke up to discover I had dreamt it. A large fire danced in the center of the clearing, 
and a dozen half-dressed people danced in unison around it to the beat of a single drum. All around the edge of the clearing were little structures, like teepees, made of branches and mud. The people seemed to notice our arrival, but never broke from the rhythm of the drum. The only disruption was the occasional cry from the drummer. It was without a doubt the same animalistic sound from before. Go get him, the man instructed Beatrice. With a smile, she left the two of us standing at the edge of the clearing. I watched her run toward the opposite edge and disappear into the darkness. Do any transgressions weigh down your soul? The man asked me. I didn't know how to respond. I chose not to respond. He grunted. This will be much easier for you if your conscience is clear. It makes no difference to him, but for you, well, it could mean all the difference in the world. I couldn't help myself. It makes no difference to who, I asked. As if to answer me, Beatrice re-emerged with what may be, to this day, the most horrifying thing I have seen. It appeared to be some sort of idol. Its head was a deer's skull, complete with pointed antlers. It was attached to the spine and ribs, which completed the monster's torso. Two uneven branches had been attached where the shoulders would be, and at the ends of the branches were outstretched hands. The hands were made from the splayed rib cages of smaller animals, maybe a raccoon or groundhog. Similar branches made up the monster's legs, but instead of ribs at the ends were two more skulls. Judging by the size, the same creatures were used for the hands and feet. The entire figure had been coated with blood. I could tell because it was a deep red in some places and blackened in others. As Beatrice placed it in front of the fire, the dancing flames seemed to make it come alive. The others stopped dancing, and the drumming ceased. The man holding me pushed me towards the circle until I was standing across the fire from the terrible effigy. That is Uexa, the man explained. He is our god, and you will be his vessel. Hail Uexa, one of the worshippers shouted. The others repeated the chant. The drummer stood and held out his makeshift drumstick ritualistically. He stared at me, unblinking, and said, Glory to Uexa. As he uttered the phrase, he pulled on the end of the drumstick. It slid off to reveal a sharpened metal instrument, like an ice pick, hidden beneath the wood. I had a pretty good idea of what he was going to do with it. Unbeknownst to my captor, I had slowly been working one of my hands free. It wasn't out of the rope, but I had managed to loosen my bounds a little. As the priest, for lack of a better term, approached, I pulled away suddenly, causing the man holding me to tighten his grip on the rope. It worked perfectly. With the man holding the rope firmly, I was able to pull my hand out of it. I grabbed his beard and yanked as hard as possible. He yelled, a mixture of surprise, rage, and pain, and let go of the rope. I released him and ran back into the forest. As I ran, I continued to struggle against the rope. With my free hand, I managed to untie the other one. Soon, I was totally free and running as fast as I dared through the dark, smoky woods. The forest was a treacherous maze after the sun went down. Fortunately, my phone still had some battery. I was able to use it as a flashlight as well as a compass. I thanked everything that is holy as I exited the trees onto the bike path. I had emerged farther down the path than I had entered. No one had followed me thus far, so I felt safe enough to retrieve my bike. Besides, 
there was at least five miles to go before I would reach town, and the idea of making that trek on foot in the dark was far from pleasant. I bolted up the path toward my bike. It was laying exactly where I had left it, which was a relief. I had been worried someone from the cult would have taken it or damaged it to prevent my escape. Apparently, they had been overconfident. I mounted the bike and turned it around to go home. When I turned on the headlight attached to the handlebars, it barely cut more than 10 feet through the smoky haze. I pedaled hard anyway. Somewhere ahead of me, I heard that wild cry I recognized now as the priest from the circle. It forced me to slow down and turn off my headlight. The moon above actually did a better job of illuminating the trail ahead, so I kept the headlight off as I cautiously continued. Up ahead, I saw what I had hoped to never see again. Uexa. The effigy had been placed in the dead center of the trail. Its rib fingers were outstretched towards me, trying to grab me. I felt it was snarling at me, and I came to a sudden stop. Looking back, it must have just been the low light and billowing smoke that caused the illusion. In the moment, I could have sworn Uexa had come to life. I was too terrified to get any closer. Since the path home was blocked, I had no choice but to go back to the factory. I could call for help on the way, I thought, but when I turned around, Beatrice, her father, and the priest were blocking my way. The priest still clutched his needle. Beatrice's father held a new rope and a large rock. He wouldn't be taking any chances this time. Between the three murderous people and the idol made of bones, I made my choice. Turning around once more, I pedaled toward Uexa. I gave the idol a wide berth as I rode past. Part of me wanted to kick it over as I passed by, but something within told me that was a bad idea, nay, fatal. I obeyed the instinct. I got home sweaty and utterly exhausted. My first thought was to call the police, but when I pulled my phone out of my pocket, it flashed the ominous low battery icon and shut off. I must have left its flashlight on when I put it in my pocket before. No matter. I put the phone on the charger in my bedroom and grabbed my laptop instead and sat down on the couch. I wrote an email to my boss. I lied about having a slight fever and explained that I would be taking sick leave the next day. The truth was, I didn't want to go near that trail or the factory yet. Not until the police had a chance to look into what happened to me. I must have fallen asleep on the couch because I woke up there to sunlight streaming through the windows. Good thing I let Donnie know I wasn't coming in today, I thought. I would have been late anyway. I retrieved my phone from the charger and unlocked it. I had a text from my coworker Greg. I literally screamed when I read it. I hadn't told Greg I was going to work that day. I felt nauseous as I called him. No answer. I called again. No answer. I called the factory and Donnie answered. Did Greg make it to work this morning? Nope. Guess he's got the same bug you got. You do have a bug, right? I hung up without answering. My head was swimming. I picked up the phone and read Greg's text once more. Alright, you think you're so fast? I'll do it your way this morning. Let's see who gets there first. The police found his bike later that morning. But Greg hasn't been seen since.
you can support The Warning Woods by clicking the Anchor Support link in the description, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash thewarningwoods. Of course, the best way to help is by writing a review and following this podcast in Apple Podcasts or subscribing on your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.